I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. That is a quote from Dune, the book we will be discussing today. That's right. That's right. So today, I'm Arik, as you guys know. Um, we also have Ion mm-hmm. and I'm Jules. Hi. We're doing a series of classic sci-fi uh, episodes. We're going to do Neuromancer as well. We've been talking about that for a while. Um, Arik and Margaret have been doing an awesome job holding down the fort. Um, but We've released we're... Ion from his captivity. He's back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoying freedom. Well, less. Um, we got enough emails that we were willing to let Ion free, but if you guys stop emailing us, then... We're, he's going back with the rancor <laughs> yeah exactly he's going back to the rancor pit with uh, at Jabba's palace have you seen um, the Boba, the F- Boba Fett show no not yet have you Boba the Fett yeah, <laughs> How was yeah it? it's we really watched good. the first three episodes okay. they're quite good and the uh, Jabba palace definitely plays a role nice yeah I'm excited to watch it um, I like to binge watch shows more so I was like kind of waiting for a couple episodes to come out before I started also like the 40 minute shows are always tougher than the 30 minute or like you know the 23 minute shows yeah because like they're easier to fit in see I'm the, I'm the opposite I wish it was an hour yeah I just want more content yeah that's fair that's fair for some for some reason it's always easier for me to watch like three episodes of a 30-minute show than one episode of an hour show. Like, it's easier to justify, you know? I'm like, okay, this show's shorter, so I'm going to watch it. Yeah. And then I just let it loop, like, three times Yeah. yeah. Um, through episodes. I find it easier to watch two hour-long episodes of a show as opposed to a movie. For some reason, I know that's a disagreement we have a little bit. <laughs> Jules likes movies a lot. Well, I love movies, and I used to always watch like a lot of movies. And one way I would do that is sometimes I wouldn't finish the movie in one sitting. Yeah. I would like have to end it and then finish it the next day or whatever. So I, I fit in a lot of movies that way. And I feel like... So I am loves watching it all the way through. Right. And so... I'm like, but that means we can't watch a movie right now because we don't have time. So, yeah, that definitely... But I think we're starting to fit in some more movies sometimes, so... Yeah, including Dune. Yes, it's a good segue. (laughs) Yes! We're going to spend a lot of time discussing the kind of themes and, you know, going to a few quotes and things in Dune. Um, But since it's such a large kind of sweeping narrative, I thought... You know, we thought it would make sense to give you guys a quick summary in case you haven't read it. Also, forewarning, there's a ton of spoilers in this episode, obviously. Like, every episode, because we're telling you about a book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I don't know how we could do it without spoilers. But Dune basically follows the story of Paul Atreides, who's the son of the Duke Leto Atreides. Um, and it's set in this fictional, you know, sci-fi universe... Um, so basically at the beginning of the book, House Atreides has been charged with going to a different planet. So they're on this planet called Caladan, which is really beautiful. There's a lot of water and all of this stuff. And they're sent to Arrakis, which is this desolate seeming desert planet. But it's the source of, it's the only source in the universe of what they call spice or melange, 
which is a drug that allows you to have eternal youth. Is, is that what it is? It's, it's used both to promote, like, a ton of different health benefits and mm-hmm. helps you, like, live longer. I, I wouldn't, don't know if necessarily people would live forever on it. Yeah, but, like, makes you, keeps you younger. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. slows aging. And then it can also let you see the future. If you have enough of it, it's all about the amount. Right. And the Spacers Guild uses it to, like, navigate between, you know, star systems and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And they can't do that without it. No, they can't. Um, So they go to Arrakis, and basically they know that they're walking into a trap. It was previously a really powerful house, the Harkonnens, um, who are, like, the Atreides, like, mortal enemies, were in charge of Arrakis. And they believe the Emperor is scheming with the Harkonnens to, like throw overthrow house of trades because they keep gaining influence amongst the other great houses um ultimately that is what happens um they assassinate the duke um the emperor gives soldiers to the harkonnens to basically attack arrakis and try to stamp out the atreides family but paul and his mother lady jessica kind of escape to the desert um, do you want to pick it up there? Yeah. So once they're in the desert, they have to go through like a series of uh, trials and ordeals to win over this like, you know, mysterious desert people called the Fremen who are like incredible fighters and like are in possession of all this like technology and know how to survive in the desert. And they're super like hardy. They've been like hardened by the harsh environment of Arrakis. Um, and they ride sandworms. Yeah, and sandworms. And they also have this whole like culture and religion around this like chosen one who's going to come to them and like is going to help them terraform the planet um and ultimately like paul wins them over and like takes control of like the imperial throne through a series of like machinations yeah, yeah. and now into the book yeah. can i just like abruptly jump into a theme sure okay so a theme a theme in this book that i found really interesting is like these, like, psyops and, like, cultural influence operations, like, the Bene Gesserit, like, seeding religions and superstitions and then, like, using that to, like, achieve their political ends. Yeah. yeah. What psyops? Like, psychological operations. Kind of like, um, kind of like the Voice of America, you know, like, broadcasting, like, radio broadcasts to, to Eastern Europe and, and the Soviet Union. Or, like, you know, some say the winds of change, like the Scorpion song, um... Scorpion is the band that did Rocky Like a Hurricane. And there's a song called The Winds of Change, which is like an anthem for like counter-Soviet protesters. And some say the CIA wrote that song. Interesting. So that's another example of like a psyop. So for, with the Benny Gesserit, they have like a lot of plans, like lying in wait, political like designs yeah. that they have long time running. And they... So are, are you referring to... Specifically, the way that they've um, planted the seed of the Messiah on the planet Arrakis. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, yeah. so that like someone with the who's a Ben Gesserit can come in and knows like what the people are looking for because the seed has been planted centuries back by her order, the yeah, Ben Gesserit order. Exactly, exactly. And that. so they can come in and have more like authority. Yeah, yeah. Because they think that Paul is um, the Messiah. Yeah. yeah. They call it, uh, what is it, the Missionaria Protectiva or something like that. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's, but I think, you know, there, it's it's like, 
it is a theme that comes up a lot because you also like when they come into Arrakis at first with like the House Atreides, like I remember the Duke Leto talking about his propaganda core and how he has like one of the best propaganda outfits in the universe and yeah. they're going to go and propagandize throughout Arrakis to like get a groundswell of support from the Fermen and mm. the other locals. And I think also even like when they go to like the Harkonnens and they're on their home planet and there's a thing with like Fade Rautha in the weird like um basically the, yeah the gladi- yeah, yeah. gladiatorial games that yeah. he's doing and how he like intentionally didn't drug the guy but then like poisoned both his blades so it would seem like he was tougher to like win the support of the people and become a hero yeah there's a lot of these themes of this like you know political intrigue and like playing with the motives and and the culture yeah 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 it's interesting but then there's also the like the counter to that like the foil to all that which i would want to say is duke leto atreides because Yeah. yeah He doesn't actually have to accept his new assignment to Arrakis. He could stay where he's being successful on this other bountiful planet. Um, but because of honor and because the emperor asked him, and even despite he went knowing like all these political pitfalls and the danger, he knew that there was danger there, he accepted it based on honor. And that's something that stood out to me in the book. Yeah, I mean it was in the movie too, but, but it, I think it, it was emphasized more in the book. Yeah, that he accepted this new assignment, um, despite that he thought that it was it'd be dangerous. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. That, yeah, okay. so the, anyway, so there's honor there. He doesn't have like a hidden agenda. He's he's just trying to be honorable. But it makes me wonder. I mean, <clears throat> clearly, explicitly in the book, like you're saying. Um, they, he, they say, like, he did it for honor. But if he didn't do that, what would be the messaging implications? Right. You know? So I wonder if also, like, for self-protection, like, if he doesn't do that, maybe he seems weak, you know? And I think the other mm-hmm. thing, too, is, like, he knows he's walking into a trap in the book. Mm-hmm. However, if if he has, he has the confidence, you know, you could call it hubris, that he can, like, outmatch these people, and then he has, he becomes a controller of the spice. Yeah. Right. So the power that that unlocks is also massive. I think that's another super interesting thing is like he is doing it for honor, but also, you know, what are the other motivations that are playing into that? Yeah. Um, but but he also like, approaches it in a much more honorable way than the Harkonnens had. Yeah, he could true. have approached it in the same way, taken a bunch off the top like they did, mm-hmm. exploited um, the Fremen, like the local peoples. Yeah. But mm-hmm. instead, he really he really cared about them. And I think the scene that is really meant to emphasize that and one reason why this scene made it into the movie is because it shows it well is when they're just like they're just taking a look at the collection of the spice and he notices the worm and the worm's coming and the um the vehicle that's supposed to take you know all the all the people who are working on gathering the spice and their like their vehicle as well supposed to take all that and take them to safety. It's yeah. not there anyway, but like he emphasized, and Dr. Liet Kynes is struck by this, that he doesn't care about the spice that's already been collected. Abandon the spice. He doesn't care it's about to be eaten by the worm. He wants the people that are there working to get to safety. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why, although Liet Kynes 
Spoilers, by the way. Lots of spoilers in this episode. Oh, yeah. Um, I should probably go back and watch yeah. Um, lots of, like, so Leah Kynes, like, originally didn't really care about Duke Leto, and I think sort of had it in for him, but seeing these, like, honorable actions from him, like, started to change um, Kynes' idea of him and wanting to be more in support of him instead of trying to be go against him. What if that was the so, point, though? Huh? What if that was the point? It, it could be. It could be. It's probably not solely. I guess. But it's I honestly, I just yeah. got the sense from the book that he really was an honorable man, and I think it wasn't. Was. It wasn't was. by like hook or by crook yeah. that he was gonna, you know, be powerful. He was hoping to be powerful while being honorable. But see, this goes back to some of the theory of control things from the episode on storytelling, where it's like maybe his theory of control that he's developed is like. By being an honorable, principled person in the world and looking after people, the world looks after me. Yeah, like actually, that's wins, fair. Like, he wins the loyalty of his men. Because that's yeah. one thing that comes up throughout the book. Not just Leto, but even Paul, his son. Um, their ability to like command the loyalty of people very quickly. Yeah. Right? And yeah. I think a good part of that is because they're just like honorable and nice and they don't want to just... like grind everyone to dust and, like, mm-hmm. extract everything possible from them. They want to work in collaboration with the people around them. Um, well, that's a really good observation. Yeah. Whereas I mean, the Harkonnens, you know, Baron Harkonnen's theory of control is something more like, I'm smarter and more cunning yeah. and have more resources than anyone else, and mm. I can just outsmart everyone yeah. as long as I'm ruthless. Yeah. Yeah, it's... <clears throat> Sorry, I feel like no, I talked about this if you want to go ahead. Well, I just, I really liked your observation of, like, the way um, the Duke and his son are able to, like, inspire loyalty in others because, I mean, it's partly why people who are protecting them will actually die for them. And that theme continues on to, like, the loyalty aspect. without, And this is without giving any spoilers, but it continues on into the second book you see it. Like, it continued through the sun, so... Yeah, because you haven't started the second book yet. Yeah, so, yeah. like, I can no say that without flowers, giving anything yeah. away, but yeah, that theme continues, and so that that's really cool, because I never really, like, was able to put that, like, didn't put a finger on that, so... Yeah, that's a really cool theme that you point out. Yeah, yeah. I guess another thing that's interesting is, like, he came there and he kind of, like, you know, started treating the people better, but he didn't have to. Like, what the Harkonnens were doing was working. Yeah. Like, the Emperor dismissed them, but they weren't overthrown, you know? No, and the Emperor dismissed them because he was explicitly worried about the growth and power of the Atreides and he wanted to take them down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Harkonnen is interesting because, like, the way they treat, like, the Fremen, though, I mean, among each other, they have the same kind of, like, cruelty and cunning. Like, they don't treat people back on their home planet very well, either. No, they don't even treat each other well. I mean, the way that the Baron treats... Oh, what's the other guy's name? Not Fade Rautha, but the other guy, Raban. Yeah, is that yeah. the Mentad? I can't remember. Not the Mentad. Um, the his the other Harkonnen who he puts in charge of Arrakis while like Paul is running around the desert, and he basically just like intentionally puts him in power, in order for him to fail, cuts him off so that he can like invade and take over. Oh. This is nephew, man. It's weird crazy. To think of oh, brain, I thought like, Fade Rafa like was that. his nephew. I think. Fade, I think they're both nephews. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. But he like really likes Fade Rafa, and then thinks that the other guy's an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's really horrible. Yeah. <laughs> 
I forgot that part. Yeah. I was going to say, like, the Harkonnens almost seem like the British East India Company in a way, where they're, like, you know, exploitative and kind of just mm. extracting resources with, like, no regard for the, the local, you know, populace, their needs, culture. Yeah. The difference, mm. though, is back in Britain, there was a very different standard of how people were treating each other. Yeah. And you can ask the question, is it better or worse? Um, it's hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, is it better or worse? As in, was the standard in Britain better than in the colonies? Oh, I know. The standard in Britain was definitely okay. Better. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I'm saying, is, is it better to have a double standard, or is it better just to treat everyone like shit? I mean, probably the double standard because then at least you're treating someone well. But you know, there's still something like kind of schizophrenic about it. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, there's almost in a twisted way a kind of morality in like the lack of morality towards all people, even your own family. <laughs> you know, yeah. like yeah. Baron Harkonnen. <laughs> His only morality is, like, success, right? Like, yeah. And obviously that's twisted, but, like, I can... I, I think I, I find that better than, like, saying I'm going to treat these people really well and everyone else I'm going to crush under my boot heel, but I don't really like either. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> I guess the difference is, like, you know, when you, when you have that inconsistency but you have some core principles that resonate, those principles can grow, like in the U.S., right? Like all people are created equal, there was that kind of schizophrenic quality where all people were not being treated that way. Yeah. But the positive aspects of that were able to metastasize, you know, um, and, yeah, just kind of spread. Whereas if it's just universal cruelty, then it's like, there's no room to improve, I guess. Or there's a, uh, only room to improve. That's that's true too. Yeah. <laughs> but you're saying there's no seed of humanity yeah. that it grows from. It has that has to like be there first. Exactly. Exactly. Somehow be created. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of the theme that you pointed out, Ion, with um, the sort of the colonizers coming in and um, exploiting like the locals and their resources, it, and or their resources. Um, I found it interesting that the film, it started with um, Chaney's point of view. I mean, she's Chaney in the book. Chandri, Chon- is Chani? it? Chani in the movie? Yeah. I forgot what yeah, her no, name was in the movie. Chaney. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Our theory is, like, they changed it because Dick Chaney is so unpopular. <laughs> yeah, so they didn't want to, like, that association. But anyway... Um, what are you guys going to call her? We'll go by... We'll just Let's call go Chani. I like Chani. Yeah, I like Chani. They have this kind of like Middle Eastern theme for the... For men in general, you know? Yeah. So I feel like Chani kind of fits with that. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, Chani... She, it starts with her point of view about the Harkonnens coming and the way they're treating her people. Um, whereas the book, I think, starts right with Paul and his point of view. And so it frames the film, starts framing the film differently than the book frames the narrative. It starts from the, like, the people who are being colonized, their point of view. So it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's, number one, a very current way of looking at the narrative and a good way to bring people in. But also, you know, um, like, hits you right over the head with it, like, right away yeah. about, like, what's happening on this planet that's that has its challenges but also has its resources um but yeah i just thought that was an interesting choice and i see why they made it 
I think it's definitely an interesting choice. I think that's one thing I felt reading this book, because I'd watched the movie before reading the book, mm-hmm. is just, like, really um, seeing, like, the different, you know, pros and cons of the two storytelling mediums. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, I feel like in the book, you know, he has the space to describe a lot of things and to draw things out in a certain way that you just simply can't do in a movie, right? Oh, yeah. Like, especially because... He does a good job of getting in the mind of Paul throughout the book yeah. that I didn't mm-hmm. get from the movie as much. Like, where Paul's, like, you know, after he goes in the desert and he starts, like, having these, like, hallucinations about the future and, yeah. like, his loss of, like, a connection to reality and all of these things. I didn't get that as much in the movie. Mm-hmm. Or even things like, um, like, Yue. I thought that was a super interesting example. Because, like, yes. in the movie... I may be misremembering because it's been a while, but I didn't feel like they, f- like, framed it as much, like, you know, one, we're walking into a known trap. Yeah. They're, everyone's trying to kill us. They're like, we're going to Arrakis. But, like, in the book, it's very clear everyone in House Atreides knows that they're going to go here and they're going to be attacked by the Sardaukar and the Harkonnens. Yeah. But yeah. In the movie, yeah. the Sardaukar attack was a surprise. The Sardaukar part of the attack was a surprise. I felt like they knew something was going to go wrong, but yeah. not when. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, like, it was interesting because in the movie, UA, like, you see him, like, a couple times. You have no idea what the conditioning mark means on his forehead. Yeah, they don't right. You just think it's design. Or, like, yeah. the you know? bull. Yeah. So, hmm? Or similar with the bull. Like, they don't explain, you know? Yeah. Or I guess at one point they say, like, something minor about it. Like, we're... But they don't dig into the details of, like, what happened with, you know... The, the old duke and how he yeah. challenged the bull and was gored and... They yeah, yeah, keep exactly. His head as a yeah. family heirloom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That I mean, that's interesting. The, the funny thing is, I feel like you see the bull more in the movie than you see it in the book. Yeah. But so I kind of like the way they thematically draw it through the movie. That's but true. But maybe yeah, it's because yeah. I had the added context of like what had happened or been implied yeah. happened in the book that it was like helpful. But yeah, with the what I was saying. Um, sorry, do you mind? No, yeah, go for it. Go for it. With like UA, I think. And forgive me if like I hope I'm not like stealing your no, thunder. No, no, go ahead. Um, I just like what you were saying is they expected, definitely in the like to, um, you know, be attacked in some way. But in the book, the one thing they don't expect is for it to come within House Atreides. Yeah. And the fact that you're reading it, you have that, like, you know, perspective that you know UA is going to betray them, but you don't know when. And so you're, like, on the edge of your seat. Every time you see them, like, talking to you, you're like, are they going to figure it out? Especially with the mother who has all the skills at her fingertips to be able to tell when people are lying. Um... And she's thwarted just because of she has her own weaknesses. Yeah. And you're just like you're like see it, see it, see it. Right. Really don't. No, totally. He does a great job of like drawing that out and like, you know, I think that's an interesting thing. Like, it's like the imperial conditioning mark. They never actually explain what imperial conditioning is specifically, Mm. but the way they refer to it again and again, you sort of understand what it ends up being. It's basically like. He went through some sort of training that makes it so it's impossible for him to, like, disobey or, like, for him to do something, um, like, assassinate someone or betray someone. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, like, to your point, on page 48, like, one of the first, you know, three or four chapters of the book... 
they have these little intros above the chapters, which I really oh, love. Yeah. yeah, I love those yeah. throughout the book, which are like um, different little like things. But he, here's the one on page forty-eight: U.A. Wellington, standard ten thousand eighty-two to ten thousand one ninety-one. Medical doctor of the Souk School, graduated, standard, 10,111. Married to Juana Marcus, Bene Gesserit. uh, Chiefly noted as betrayer of Duke Leto Atreides. Mm. And, like, they tell you that before they introduce Dr. Yue the first time. Yeah, it's interesting. Whereas in the movie, you only find out he's betraying them when he betrays them. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not as an effective plot device. But it also makes the movie kind of, like, tight and more, um, I don't know, I guess standard in presentation, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> like, the, I guess that, if I'm going to say, like, the, the benefits of the movie, kind of creating this um, really, like, striking visual style um, and, like, design approach that really draws you in. And then just, like, having a tight overall, like, mm. um, you know, creative output. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the book is a little more, like, open-ended and freewheeling, but there's so much more there. Right. Yeah, and some of these devices are more interesting in the book, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of, um, speaking of those passages at the beginning, what do you think, what do you guys think of, like, the princess being totally cut out of the movie? Yeah, that's interesting. As well as part, as well as part of the book so far. Hopefully they make another movie. They will. The princess is in the Princess Irulan, Mm -hmm. or, Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, I mean, was the princess... In any of the scenes up to the point where we got to in the movie, in the book? No, I just meant, like, for her, like for us, we didn't know her significance until the end. We knew of her because of her little excerpts that oh, she yeah. wrote um, throughout the book. So her, yeah. she was there. And then it's sort of like, kind of like a cool payoff. When yeah. she make starts to make it into the narrative, you're like, whoa, she lived at the same time? Like, yeah. you didn't even yeah. realize she lived close enough to all the stuff she was writing about, all the historical stuff she was writing about, to be a part of the narrative. Um, That's actually a really good point. Um, a lot of these intro, paragraph intro things, I think maybe almost all of them, or the vast majority of them, are from various writings of, like, Princess Irulan. So you, like... And you could tell she, like, knows Muad'Dib. And I definitely remember as I was reading it, like, thinking about, okay, like, what role does she play in this story? Because they reveal that she was, you know, the emperor's daughter. And you can tell that she has some close relationship with Mm. Muad'Dib, who's Paul. Um, But for most of the book, it's like, how could that even happen? He's, like, running around in the desert, like, you know, trying to get a Fremen army and stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um... So, yeah, I think that that's a good point. I, that hadn't actually occurred to me. Yeah, like, I, I thought she was just some chronicler from the far future. I didn't mm-hmm. think she was actually in the story. And that is an interesting payoff. Yeah. <clears throat> Though her actual role ends up being kind of unfortunate, you know? <laughs> like well, her situation, you know? Yeah. I don't know how much they put in this book. Well, they basically, I mean, they do say at the end that basically she's gonna be his wife but it's only for a title and he's actually gonna care about chani and uh she's just gonna be like surrounded with wealth but like ignored and unloved that's pretty much what yeah yeah that, yeah that summarizes it and she already had wealth so it's not really a net gain yeah 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 um 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I loved his, his writing throughout this. I think the way that he, like, all of these different nuggets that we've talked about, like the UA, the Princess Irulan, um, various other things, he, he does a really good job of, like, foreshadowing things, dropping little nuggets in, and, like, weaving this kind of, like, tapestry of a narrative. Yeah. And then I also think he does an amazing job of, like, tying it up at the end. It was one of the most, like, satisfying ends to a story that I've had in a while. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Um, When you see Paul, like, really come into his power, it's, like, super satisfying. Yeah. I found it. It's really cool. And part of that... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Now I'm just kind of like crossing my wires like what's in this book and what's in the next book. Yeah, you know even more than me because I didn't finish the next book. The end of this book is when they, he fights and kills Fade Rautha and then he basically like hits a checkmate on the Emperor. Right, and then he takes over. And then he takes over and then that's it. Okay. okay. Nothing more is in this <clears throat> book. Alright, so I'm going to try not to give any spoilers, yeah. Because the next book, <clears throat> nice thing about Messiah is he picks up right where this, this leaves off. And it's all, like, familiar characters. Um, the one after that, Children of Dune, is, like, more far removed. Okay. Um, Have you read any of Children of Dune? No, I haven't. I took a pause to, like, read, like, some other stuff. Yeah. But I want to come back to it. Maybe I'll come back to it on the, on the trip. Oh. Okay, so there are a lot of good things about this book. Was anyone else bothered by suddenly a lot of time has elapsed and like Chani and yeah that that annoyed and me and Paul had like have ch- like a child or children I forget yeah because I, like, I, I was wish, just like, like whoa what I was like what I feel like there's missing pages here yeah I would have wanted that content like I don't see why this book couldn't have been like partly a love story and... yeah I feel like they skipped the the love story bit. Or just like battles in the desert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was your impression? I I think it's tricky. I think like it would have been really satisfying to see more of him, you know, coming up and learning the Fremen ways. Yeah, exactly. Um, and his relationship with Chani developing. In the book, she is a bit of a flat character, I think. That like she doesn't she's just like his like, whatever, partner. But, like, she doesn't have too much color herself. Um, so that would have been nice to get. But on the other hand, like, with the book as it is, it's, like, 650 pages already, you know? So, like, how much space and time could they have for that? And if he was going to cut it down, you know, what would you cut out for that? Mm-hmm. What would you mortgage away? Yeah. I think he should just go full, like, Lord of the Rings and just... I mean, he pretty much did. 600 pages is, like, the first two Lord of the Rings books. How much is the longest Lord of the Rings? I want to say it's like 400 pages. Really? I might be totally wrong. I haven't read them in a long time. Wait, let me look it up. So that's true. No. Maybe, I, I actually think I'm totally wrong. Yeah, it'll be interesting just to see, just for like... Just for reference. It's uh, 1,137 pages total, including the index, appendices, languages, contents, and prologue. Uh, for all the books combined? Yeah. Holy shit. That's how many that pages? Uh, like 1,200, roughly. Okay, so oh. that's really not that So long. it's only wow. twice as long yeah. as this, and it's three books. That's insane, yeah. Wow, and it has all that world building in it. Yeah. Well, what about the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> but but related to the world building, I, I felt that the world building in this book 
was as good as Lord of the Rings. Like, there's yeah. no other book I've read that built such a rich world, like, to, to the extent of this book, I thought. Yeah. Like, they did an amazing job of, of doing that. I would agree. And in aspects that are sometimes ignored, you know, like, you know, the culture, the religion, you know, like, the, the politics, like, the technology. I love yeah. the ecology yeah. sections. Yeah. They have a whole, a whole appendix on the ecology of Dune. Oh, they do? Yeah, oh, at the wow. back of this book, which which I thought was super, super interesting. Um, and it's written from... I think it's written from the perspective of Liet Kynes, or about Liet Kynes, at least. I don't think that was in the audiobook. Ah, you'll have to grab Ion's copy of the book, because yeah. he has the same copy, and, and I really like that appendix. Um, because they talk about, like... Um, Liat Kine's father and like his really? vision of how they were going to terraform Arrakis and like create water um, and how he like went into the Fremen and like created this this idea of of open water on Arrakis and trained them um, on all of the ecology, which I thought was super fascinating. Wow. Yeah, because that's just an that's an extension of um, the dream that that is like capturing so many people of you know the reason why they keep watering those palm trees yeah despite yeah. the fact that they take what a hundred a hundred men's worth of water every day yeah, yeah. um and that room that, that that's in the book but not in the movie of like all that greenery yeah um they keep it because it's the dream of the people for the whole planet to be like that yeah oh that's cool I, w- I definitely want to read that yeah it's also interesting how like the Bene Gesserit kind of play into this and weave like the prophecy of Muad'Dib with this pre-existing like belief system about the terraforming of the planet you know it's kind of like how when religions go into different countries like they kind of merge with local beliefs yeah know? like Christmas or like Tibetan Buddhism mm. it's called syncretism yeah. um, it was actually I studied a lot when I was taking advanced Spanish classes because yeah. it's a big... It plays a large part in, like, Latin American culture um, because the native uh, ceremonies were getting stamped out by the uh, colonizers, basically. So what they did instead is they, like, adapted their ceremonies into Christian rituals. Interesting. Um, and there's a lot of, like, interplay between those in Latin America. Like, the intersection of, like, these pagan rituals and, you know, they historical indigenous religious stuff um but within the context of like christmas that's cool i didn't know you you'd like study that <laughs> yeah yeah that was a subject was so we had quite a few readings and stuff about that in, in spanish what are like some of the rituals i can't tell you off the top of my head it's been years since i took yeah uh, it's the nature class. of taking classes like yeah that, exactly. Right? exactly dude i was like i remember parts of my cell bio and with the mRNA vaccine, I was like, damn, I wish I remembered just a little bit more. Oh, <laughs> man. But I remember enough that it's plausible. But, like, the part that I don't remember is, like, l- l- lysosomes degrade proteins in your blood. But, like, which proteins and why? And, like, is it foreign proteins or just our own proteins? And how does that work? But I haven't... I don't care enough to have Googled it, but... Yeah. You know. I, I, f- I feel you, like... Um, for those listening, I got a um, philosophy major in undergrad, but I'm hesitant to, you know, read and review philosophy on this podcast because I remember when I knew so much more and I would have so many more connections to talk about. So it almost feels 
Like, yeah, I'd be very self-critical <laughs> talking about philosophy once all that time has passed since those classes. So I, I understand the way you feel because you remember knowing more and you want to be able to say more and give more context. Yeah, or yeah, I just remember like certain pieces of information that like connect together and I just don't remember the connections, mm-hmm. you know, to, like form mm-hmm. that bigger picture. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah but, um, but I mean, the good thing is, you know, on this podcast, we're talking to folks who are like stepping outside of their field, they're curious about stuff, they're, they're just wanting to be intellectually engaged. So, you know, I think for, for us and for them, it's like, you know, we don't have to be so critical. Yeah, you know? no, I, I know. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so <laughs> do we want to talk about quotes we like? Because I know, Ari, that um, you had set aside some quotes. I would love that, yeah. Yeah, um, that was a good segue because I was just trying to find one, so here we Sweet. go. Sweet. Um, so this one is basically the showdown between... Tufir Hawat, the Mentat, and the Lady Jessica. Oh, man, yeah. That's something that was totally neglected from the movie, too. Kind yeah, of like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Where he's, like, trying to... F- not trying to frame Lady Jessica. Like, he really thinks it's Lady yeah. Jessica. Yeah. Um, and again, no one even considers that it could be UA because exactly. of this thing. Basically, they're going back and forth because she found out that um, she was under suspicion... So she orders him to come to her, and then they're they're in this really intense con- conversation, and she kind of like shows him her her power. Um, so then she's basically saying, you know, which target um, offers itself most enticingly to the Harkonnens? The Duke, she asked. Attractive target, yes, but no one, with the possible exception of Paul, is better guarded. Me, I tempt them surely, but they must know the Bene Gesserit make difficult targets. And there's a better target, one whose duties create, necessarily, a monstrous blind spot. One to whom suspicion is as natural as breathing. One who builds his entire life on innuendo and mystery. She darted her right hand toward him. You! Hawat started to leap from his chair. I have not dismissed you, Thufir, she flared. The old mentat almost fell back into the chair. So quickly did his muscles betray him. She smiled without mirth. Now you know something of the real training they give us, she said. Um, and then I'm skipping a little bit forward. I said to you before that we should understand each other, she said. I meant you should understand me. I already understand you. And I tell you now that your loyalty to the Duke is all that guarantees your safety with me. Um, and then one more. If I desired a puppet, the Duke would marry me, she said. He might even think he did it of his own free will. Um, yeah, and then it basically goes on from there. But I just thought it was a super powerful moment where Lady Jessica, like, kind of unveiled her hand and did it in this, like, masterful way to, like, basically show through fear, like, you don't know who you're fucking with. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, showing him... So for those who haven't read it, like, she forced him to sit down just with her power of her voice. Yes. So showing him that, like, yeah, if I wanted to kill my husband, like, I could have done it a ton of times over because I'm this powerful. Yeah. Yeah. It's better than Jedi Mind Trick, though. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It seems to work, like, a lot more, like, thoroughly and across more situations and, like, much more specifically. Like, a Jedi Mind Trick seems more like it lands sometimes, it doesn't land sometimes, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think it's more powerful than the Jedi Mind Trick. 
Yeah, I mean, in the movie, it really does a good job conveying that power, especially using, like, the sound design. Like, the sound of her voice and the way they kind of, like, modulate it to be, like, unearthly, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But the Jedi mind trick is, like, these are not the droids you're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Though, you know, obviously, like, always respect the Jedi mind trick. I mean, as much as I love Star Wars, I think the reality is that, like, Star Wars in general is a little more, like, cartoonish and fluffy, whereas yeah. this has a lot more, like, substance behind some of the things that they're doing and, like, you know, even though it's still science fiction, right, there's, like, at least the rationale within that universe for how things work, whereas in Star Wars it's just, like, <laughs> midichlorians. <laughs> <laughs> just like George yeah. Lucas basically like going crazy which I love yeah. you know it's awesome <laughs> but yeah I think yeah. it fits in with that and like a lot of this like detail has been filled in by you know fan fans over over time but now with Disney you know all that stuff is Star Wars legends quote unquote so you know and it doesn't have that cohesion I mean Dune is a very like cohesive vision mm-hmm. with all that detail yeah not true what, what is interesting, though, is that they both, um, although they were executed differently, they both kind of, in my mind, borrow ideas of Buddhism. Yeah. Like, with the midichlorians, those are things, that's like something, what, that's part of the force, so it's it's part of the thing that's that moves through you, or maybe it's different, but the force at least, something is in everybody, in everything, it yeah, connects like us all together, it binds us, yeah. you know, that saying. Yeah. Um, so that's like kind of like a Buddhist idea yeah. based and on my understanding. It's like overcoming your emotions or like yeah. know, finding a better balance with your emotions. Yeah, if you fuel your hate and your negative emotions, yeah. then you've gone to the dark side, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and the feel, the like pursuit of equanimity is the, is the side of the light. Yeah. And so that the pursuit of equanimity is very like Buddhist too. And that's true in Dune um, too. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, that's what I'm yeah, exactly. Like my favorite quote, um, like the fear is the mind killer quote. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's I feel very Buddhist. I thought that that really stood out to me when I read the book. Um it was was that piece there. So it's it's interesting and we can dive more into that. Um, in a couple minutes, but, uh, that quote, but yeah, it's just kind of cool that I totally agree with you, Ari, that like Star Wars is a little more fluffy, but, and then Dune is a little more like, what's, what would be a word you'd use? Yeah. Dark and complex. Yeah. Yeah, Dark and complex. Um, yeah, for sure. But they both happen to borrow from like. Buddhist religion, which is really interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. Yeah. I think maybe, you know, it's a sign of, like, the... Again, going back to the medium that, that we're talking about, right? Like, the storytelling medium. The primary storytelling medium. Because Star Wars' primary storytelling medium has always been visual. Like, movies mm-hmm. and shows. Of course, there are books, many books that have been written, and I'm sure there are some great ones. But, like, the meat of it is the movies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Dune, the meat of it is really the book. Mm-hmm. And books, and then, you know, the movies follow on from that. So I think that affects, you know, what you fit in and wh- how things um, develop. It gives Dune a much, like, darker edge and much more of this, like, intrigue and complex interweaving narratives and things like that, which is really difficult to do in a movie without just making it, like, incoherent. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Do you know when Dune was published? 
No, but I can Long find time out. ago. My mom actually told me to read it, like, when I was, like, younger, because she read it, like, even way before that. Yeah. Copyright 1965 by Herbert Property yeah. Galaxy. Yeah, I think she read it as a kid, actually. So 1965, like, was in the height of the Cold War, right before Vietnam, where Star Wars was, like, the late 70s. And in the 70s, there was, like, stagflation, and the Vietnam War had ended, you know, like, prior, like, decade. I think Vietnam War ended... No, it ended in the early 70s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So maybe it's just like a different time, too, and a different perspective, you know? Mm. Um, I would say the mid-60s was a pretty tumultuous and dark time in a way. But also some of these, like, themes of, like, ecology and, like, you know, um, post-colonialism. Yeah. uh, Which, you know, at the time were um, so relevant and so so much in the air. um, And now have just been, like, caricatured beyond belief, (laughs) but... Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting to give it the historical context. That's cool. Yeah, it's probably an interaction between that and, like, this person. Like, I don't know much about Frank Herbert or about George Lucas's personal life. Um, but I think the time period does affect, like, the, the perspective a little bit. Yeah. At the very least, they, they must have been semi-conscious of the audience that they're speaking to. Yeah. You know, whether or not they're... Like curating it, but you know, I think that could subliminally change some things. Yeah. Give them ideas, even just for their world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like you know, some movies are more pro- and, and pieces of art are more product of their time than others. Like Red Dawn, you know, where the Soviets invade and the high school students fight them off, <laughs> <laughs> or like the Rocky movie where he fights the Russians. Like that couldn't have been made in like. Not the 80s. <laughs> the 80s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's true. Okay, I'm going to go back to the book here. So, this is where um, Paul and Jessica... So, this is after they've been betrayed, after they've been in the desert. They've now been found by Liet Kynes, and they're in one of the... Um, planetary like uh research stations basically um and you know there paul is talking about his plan with kinds and jessica and he's trying to like basically win support from liet kinds um and kinds is pretty skeptical of this he's like you know because arrakis and the people of arrakis the for men have their own plan for what they want to do and they don't want to get caught up in this like imperial power struggle right he's like we're trying to terraform the the planet and and make it a livable place for our people um so i'm gonna again like read some dialogue and like skip some of the in-between things so that we can i can get through it but from the throne paul said i can make a paradise of arrakis with the wave of a hand this is the coin i offer for your support kind stiffened my loyalty's not for sale sire Paul stared across the desk at him, meeting the cold glare of those blue-within-blue eyes, studying the bearded face, the commanding appearance. A harsh smile touched Paul's lips, and he said, Well spoken. I apologize. Kynes met Paul's stare and and presently said, No Harkonnen ever admitted error. Perhaps you're not like them, Atreides. It could be a fault in their education, Paul said. You say you're not for sale, but I believe I have the coin you'll accept. For your loyalty, I offer my loyalty to you. Totally. 
Um, this is nonsense, Kynes said. You're just a boy, and... I'm the Duke, Paul said. I'm an Atreides. No Atreides has ever broken such a bond. Kynes swallowed. When I say totally, Paul said, I mean without reservation. I would give my life for you. Sire, Kynes said, and the word was torn from him. But Jessica saw that he was not now speaking to a boy of 15, but to a man, to a superior. Now Kynes meant the word. In this moment, he'd give his life for Paul, she thought. How do the Atreides accomplish this thing so quickly, so easily? And then basically, uh, the door slams open, and um, the Harkonnens are in there, killing Duncan Idaho, and then Kynes like, helps him escape. Oh. Yeah. And oh, then later, so Kynes dies alone in the desert. Yeah. But again, it's going back to this ability to, like, you know, the honor, the loyalty, the principles, and the ability to win people's support by that, right? But he's like, how, you know, how do the Atreides accomplish this quickly? That reputation has taken, like, generations to build, too. Yeah. It's interesting. This actually, in a way, goes a lot to Jocko's podcast, where the guy's, like, admitting error. He's, like, taking accountability. He's trying to see, understand the other person's perspective. He's cultivated this reputation over a long period of time. He's trying to listen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, I was hit by the sadness of that scene again. Yeah. That sucks. Duncan Idaho. Oh, he's a great character. It was yeah. sad that he died so early. And he was cast perfectly. Like, Jason Momoa is, like, what, a good casting choice for that, I feel. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I don't I don't know who that actor is, but yeah, I also agree. He was really well cast. He so was now Aquaman. I wanna see... Really? Yeah. Oh, that makes me want to see Aquaman. <laughs> it... I thought it was pretty good. I mean, it's terribly rated, but I thought it was a pretty good movie. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Wasn't he in uh, Game of Thrones, too? Yeah, he was Kyle Drogo. Yeah. Yeah. He That was a perfect role for him as well. Oh, yeah. He did yeah. a really good job of Kyle Drogo. Yeah, he was born for, for those types of roles. Yeah. Plus, the nice thing about being Kyle Drogo is that he stopped being in the show before it went to shit. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. The last two seasons of Game of Thrones are, like, really atrocious. It actually ruined the series for me. Like, oh. the first few seasons are one of the some of the best TV I've watched, and I've never gone back and rewatched it because of how bad the last two seasons were. I, like, genuinely thought it was, like, one of the worst things I've ever seen. I just stopped before the last two seasons. That's good. Yeah. Especially because they built up all this hype and, like, momentum, and then the they just fucked it up. What ruined it? They basically got ahead of the books, and so the directors were, like, writing it, and, like, it just didn't make any sense. Like, they left all of these things untied up, like, you know, the whole, like, series for, like, whatever, five, six seasons, they build up, like, the threat of, like, the invaders, you know, the, the White Walkers and stuff, and... I don't know. I, I don't know how many spoilers just, you guys no want to hear. But yeah, yeah, I don't just, mind. Okay. If you don't mind spoilers, they basically just defeat them like super easily. What? <laughs> like fucking Arya kills the Night King. Not Jon Snow. What? She just like runs up from her like weird like training and just like stabs him and he just dies. Okay. And that's it. All right. This is fucking oh, stupid. They should have hired better writers. Yeah, exactly. And then like... Yeah. And yeah, it's it's just bad. It's, it's that just not good. <laughs> that sounds dumb. Yeah, which was sad because I did really like that show. Because Arya had her own plotline and her own like hero's journey that didn't have anything to really do with that. Yeah, and then yeah. it ended up not really mattering, other than that she could kill the Night King, which I guess matters. But like, 
but it's still a little just like disconnected. It sounds very yeah. wah wah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. It sounds like one of the best like sci-fi fantasy writers was writing it, and then it was just replaced by like corporate shows. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that's that's pretty accurate. But to be fair to them, George R. R. Martin has been, R. Martin has been saying he's going to finish this series for like forever. Yeah. I don't think he'll ever actually finish it. Which Maybe that's his final it. fuck you. He's like, I'm not just going to kill the characters, I'm going to kill the series. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. He's like, you know what would really be suspenseful? <laughs> just keep waiting. <laughs> Alright, I'm going to go pee. You guys can continue. What? what? Just pause it and stop so that we know where to like cut it off. No, so you guys can just continue. No, no just, just pause it. <laughs> All right, so we're back. Ion's back. We're all back. <laughs> Relieved. Uh, all right, so next we thought that we'd read oops, my favorite quote, and it's the one that I alluded to earlier as I thought it had like some Buddhist ideals in it. Uh, all right, so without any further ado, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. That is great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that is incredible. Yeah, I love that one. I think it's a really good like mantra, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. an excellent mantra. I, um, what I see in it is the, the, like that, that Buddhist idea of, um, like my emotions don't have to control me or own me. What I can do is instead, if I have the mindfulness, sit back and absorb, observe the emotions and they will pass. Everything is temporary. Everything will pass both positive and negative emotions. Um, and so I don't have to let it like be buffeted by my emotions, such as fear, which is a particularly powerful emotion. Yeah. Um, and I can sit back and, as more of an observer in order to feel like, you know, more. I mean, in the end, you feel like you have more control, although you really still don't necessarily have control over things. But you yeah, you feel less buffeted by the winds of change. And so that's kind of like one thing that I saw in it, which which I thought was like it's inspiring, you know, definitely why it's a, a good mantra, as you say. So yeah, but that's what I was seeing in it. What do you guys see? Definitely those things. Um, I think another thing that I see in there that's kind of Buddhist in nature is like this idea of like the small death that brings total obliteration. So in Buddhism, there's an idea that there's like a hair's breadth difference between like awakening and complete delusion in a way. Um, where you're either like present and you're feeling your feelings, you're feeling, you know, where you are or your feelings are running you and you're not present. You're like a zombie pretty Mm -hmm. much walking around. So that concept that like, you know, you're either absorbing it and it's passing over you or it's like carrying you away. Um, I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, I definitely agree with all that. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, it reminds me of like when you're meditating or when you're doing mindfulness, like, how, like, you know, watching, like, emotions or thoughts, you know, kind of flow through you and by you, and then at the end you realize you're just sitting with it and that's it, it's gone. Yeah. Um, But if you try to, like, 
it, like you say, it's like this interesting balance, right? Like you have to let it come, you have to sit and observe it, but you have to try not to be like swept away by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you also have to not run away from it. Yeah, so it's yeah. like yeah. A, a thin line of of achieving that. Yeah, and they they talk about the not running away part too, where they're like you have to face towards it. Yeah, yeah, and and that's another interesting thing I heard at one point from from Sam Harris, which is like, you know, if you can't escape from a situation, escape into it. You know, which kind of like feels to me like you're returning to like face the difficult emotion instead of like running away because you can't run away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but this also raises an interesting theme um, that I saw in Dude, which is like this theme of hardship breeding strength, you know, where they're like, you face your fear, you face this difficult emotion, and it kind of like scours you clean and makes you stronger, you know? So there's that, that old saying, which is like hard times may breed like strong men, strong men create good times, uh, good times create weak men, and weak men create bad times. Um, so in Dune, you know, the Fremen are like these hardened people, like living in this really tough, uh, atmosphere. Um, and when they're finally unleashed, they do like, you know, a lot of, uh, damage or they're very impactful because they've like been hardened and tempered in that environment. Same with the Sardaukar. Yeah. 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 So it's just an interesting theme of like, you know, the book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. I think it's an interesting thing. I think the... The Romans exemplified that pretty well. Yeah. Um, you know, in their the rise and fall of the Roman civilization. Um, yeah, yeah. Like the decadence of the end. Yeah. Hmm. It's interesting. I think there was also a fear that Duke's, Duke Leto's men were going to get even better in the hardened environment, right? And yeah. Which is why they were so desirable to the Emperor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they were already desirable, and then I think he, he liked that idea that they were going to come even more hardened, even better. Yeah. He wanted them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he was also afraid of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow, actually, there are a lot of moments in the book with that theme. Yeah, or even, like, the psychedelic hardship, you know, of, like, you know... Yeah. <laughs> When the when um, Jessica and, and Paul like are taking going through that ritual, the psychedelic ritual to like become the Fremen, like the Reverend Mother, the basically. Reverend Mother, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. It almost kills them. Yeah, which yeah. also is like very realistic in a way. That's why they, like this theme of like you know hardship making you stronger is, is true. Yeah. Um, and and for psychedelics, for sure, like like it's a difficult experience that yields insight. You know, and in this book, they take it to the next level. Like, real psychedelics can't kill you. Mm-hmm. But in this book, it can literally kill you. It so. will literally kill you unless you have, like, the training to, like, whatever. The Bene Gesserits can, like, detect the poison and, like, adjust their proteins to deal with it or whatever, <laughs> yeah. which is pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's a little on the midichlorian level. Those yeah. Much better it is. it is, yeah. <laughs> it is, for sure. <laughs> um, oh, oh, I wanted to say something about midichlorians. Okay. So we were talking about Star Wars and Buddhism. So here's where I think Star Wars and Buddhism have an unfortunate, like, overlap, is sometimes, like, Buddhists will use, like, science in inappropriate ways to try to justify their beliefs. Yeah. I think midichlorians is a good example of that, where they're like, the force, you know, moves through us all and everything's interconnected, makes sense. 
But then they're like, and science backs it up. Check out these midichlorians. <laughs> where it kind of <laughs> is a stretch. You know? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's funny you say that, though, because I feel like science does a lot of times back up Buddhism. It, it does to certain extent. benefits of meditation, etc. That's true. That's true. There, There is a good amount of science backing up the benefits of meditation, but they'll do things like they'll say, like, look at the atom. Like, you know, mo- like most of the world is like emptiness, right? Like the atom is mostly empty. But that's a stretch to me, because that's not what I really feel like they mean by emptiness. Um, and so they're kind of, like, trying to leverage the language of modern science to, like, build credibility in what they're saying. And I just don't think it's appropriate or necessary. You know? It's, it's like any, any like, new age, or not, I mean, Buddhism is a new age, but any, like, you know, um, group of people that can kind of, like, grab a hold of, like, quantum mechanics and, like, start to misapply it, you know, can... find enough of what they need to like add extra weight to what they're saying but again just like not necessary Mm. yeah I mean it is empty in an atom right it is it is but at least at least you know in my in, in my perception when they say emptiness they mean like things are empty of independent existence oh of ego like empty like like, get rid of your ego. Is that what they mean? Honestly, like, a lot of times I'm not sure. I, I In my opinion, it's, like, independent existence and, like, permanent existence. So it's, like, you know, an apple is, is empty of independent existence because it's, like, you know, created of all these, like, constituent parts. And it's also independent of permanent existence because it's, like, you know, grows, decays, changes. So it's, like, mm. there's no thing that's, like, separate. And in that sense, everything is empty because it's it's empty of that independent existence and that is a really fascinating idea. But so, yeah, so I see like, what you mean by that being like totally different. Yeah, yeah it's like it's like temporally and uh, yeah. you know, conceptually empty. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But not physically empty. That's kind of beside the point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Though it's interesting, but it's still beside the point. Like, I see you looking for another quote. Is there another thing that you wanted to read? Um, I don't think I'll necessarily quote it, but just going back to like, you know, the... Um, like, I guess the qualities of Paul Atreides as a leader, I thought two really interesting moments um, where where that comes to play is, one, there's this whole build-up between Paul and Stilgar, Stilgar being the yeah. leader of yeah. the Fremen um, tribes, and basically in their culture, the way you ascend to power is by challenging them to a battle to the death, and then the winner assumes the leadership, but... Yeah. Paul is trying to figure out how he can avoid this because basically he doesn't want, like, Stilgar is his friend and an amazing leader and a great fighter and a great tactician. He doesn't want to kill him. Um, But the culture, you know, in a way doesn't allow them to do that. But Mm -hmm. then they figure out a way to to get around it. So basically he calls a uh, a gathering of whatever the tribe and then he basically says... Um, Paul's basically like, I rule here, I'm the duke, it's my ducal fief, and um, whether the emperor says it or not, I own this land, and um, then basically he says, you know, who is there here to say I'm not the rightful ruler on Arrakis? Must I prove it by leaving every Fremen tribe in the Erg without a leader? Will I subtract from our strength when we need it most? 
I am your ruler, and I say to you it, that it is time we stopped killing off our best men and started killing our real enemies, the Harkonnens. And then, you know, Stilgar says, long live Duke Paul and the Muad'Dib, and then, you know, they, they managed to, like, redefine the culture in a way to allow him to avoid doing that, which I thought was, like, Brilliant. really good job of, like, threading the needle on the situation that he was in yeah. from a leadership perspective. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, again, speaks to this, like, playing with culture and symbolism and spectacle to, like, you know, achieve your ends. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then another one, a little bit later, is Gurney Halleck comes back. Um, they He finds Gurney Halleck, he brings him back, he meets the Lady Jessica, and he's convinced that she was the betrayer. Right. Um, and he basically, like, captures her, puts a knife to her back, when and Paul walks in. Yeah, yeah. And then they have this whole discussion, and basically the outcome is, like, they convince him that she's not the betrayer and he like throws himself at his at their feet is like you know you should kill me you should like rob me and they were like we'll just look at this as a misunderstanding between friends um which i thought again is a really like powerful example of his like leadership his loyalty to his men yeah um, and, and all of those things and yeah. also explains their loyalty to him yeah and, and not wanting to to lose talented and lawyer loyal subjects you yeah. know like seeing that as a loss it's like the loss for what of, it is. Sorry. Oh. Um. And there was another example in um in the movie as well where the mentat like when he failed to predict something I forget the, what the, the seeker the, the seeker yeah. the guy hiding in the in the cavern who that was cool tries to assassinate Paul yeah. yeah exactly and he's like okay like you know, I resign. And Duke's like, that would only mean that I don't get, you know, get the benefit of your great skill. So, you know, you know, fuck, fuck your honor. Stay, please stay on, you know? Yeah. Like, so same thing. And then you, and then I, and you were going to say. Yeah, I was going to say, this is like the opposite of the Soviets. Where the Soviets, I guess in a way they, you know, they had some cultural sense, but what their approach consisted of was melting down church bells, destroying the old culture, Killing the best people to like suppress resistance within the ranks. Yeah. Um, you know, tons of power. They were more like the Harkonnens in their approach. And honestly, um, at least at first, the US and Afghanistan was a little bit like that, like misunderstanding local culture, being a little bit ham handed, playing into the hands of the enemy for that reason. Um, yeah. I mean, I think you can make an argument that like nobody was like the Atreides, everyone was like the Harkonnens. Um, Lawrence of Arabia. And the Cold War was like. I mean, yeah, the things that the U.S. did in Afghanistan, not just Afghanistan, but, like, Vietnam, Korea, um, Latin America, all the proxy dictatorships and stuff, Iran, um, was pretty bad. But at least at home, I mean, that's going back to what we were talking about before, right? Where is it better that, at least in the home turf, the U.S. was, like, not murdering its best generals and scholars and scientists? I think it is better, but it's still bad what we did. Yeah, um, yeah. In, um, you know, from a colonialism perspective. Yeah, but I think that's the nuanced perspective, right? It's like, it's it's bad, but it's better. And I think it's important to remember that, especially in this day and age where, you know, because, yeah, the Soviets are a good example of, like, being like the Harkonnens, where the Soviets were in Afghanistan, too, and they did a terrible job. Yeah. You know, like, they're the ones who initially, like, the Mujahideen was, like, fighting against, um, and that's when we were, like, arming them. And they were also doing that shit at home. Yeah. I mean, not to, to the same degree or in the same way, but still very consistent. Um, and in Afghanistan, too, like, when we went in, like, you know, when we left, 
women were getting educated, uh, women were going to university. It was a much more peaceful country, much more educated country. Um, so, you know, they were definitely better off in the end because we went there. Um, not now, so what good is it? Yeah, and now exactly. they're fucked. Like, worse than they even were because now, like, half the country helped us and those people are being hunted in the streets. Yeah. So... Well, and the thing is, did we really help them in that way if we weren't able to help them build a sustainable democracy and, and yeah. culture and society, right? Like, the fact that within two weeks their civil society collapsed, you know, what did we really achieve there? Yeah, but part of that is because they were so dependent on our air support and, and, and um, you know, intel assets and advisors, and, like, we also gave them no notice, and, like, in some cases... We evacuated bases without even telling them that we were leaving. Yeah. Like, we were just gone, and, like, everything was just, all the stuff was just, you know. Right. In complete disarray, yeah. But in a way, Dune feels like Afghanistan, right? Like, Graveyard of Empires, like, the Harkonnens came there, and they're trying to, like, suppress this land of, like, super, you know, um, elusive locals. And then the Atreides come there, and, like, these occupiers come and go for, like, thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, not to get too heavy on a on a fiction episode, but do we want to end with something light? This is a pretty heavy book, but we can end with something lighter. We can say what's our favorite piece of technology. We can each go. Around. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, we haven't really talked about the technology. Um, okay, this isn't really tech. Well, it is technology, but it's it's a little bit cheating. I think my favorite technology and one of the reveals in the book was like the uh, the sand riders. So, yeah. like, the hooks and how they oh, actually, yeah. like, the worms that everyone is terrified of and, like, thinks they're going to, like, like are these great destroyers. Like, the Fremen know how to, like, ride them. Yeah. And they, like, travel the desert for, like, great distances. So I love that whole, like, um, you know, scene where Paul is, like, um, going through this trial and it ends up being, like, the biggest worm that, like, anyone has ever seen. <laughs> it just happens to be... Yeah. Um, and then he manages to, to get on there. And I also really liked, related to that, how they took the um, worms and used them in their final assault on the Emperor to, like, bla- they blast open the wall with, like, atomic bombs and they cruise in there with these giant worms. Like, yeah. <laughs> Sardaukar just getting massacred everywhere. I mean, that was that was awesome. Yeah. And that's the desert power that his dad said they had to discover in the beginning. Right. Yeah. Exactly. He definitely was successful, Paul, in accumulating desert power. Yeah. He was. That's really cool. That's really cool. What about you guys? Well, I really like the still suit a lot. Oh, yeah. The still suit's awesome. I mean, they're sick. And I, I love that it was so thought out to the point that it's like, they even thought about the callus that people would develop on their face because of the, um, the tube that goes in their nose, you know? Um, also, they made that look really cool in the movie. Yeah. But, yeah, like, I was, I mean, I just love how well that was thought out. And, you know, just, like, every bit of technology showing you how precious water was on the planet that, you know, they would only lose a thimbleful a day of water from their body because they were able to recycle so much from this still suit. So, yeah, that really caught my imagination so much. Yeah, still suits a really good one. I think all of that, like like you said, all of the technology related to like the preciousness of the water, like mm-hmm. the dew collectors, right? And yeah. I think at one point he paints a picture of like in the morning in the field, 
Like, these guys go out to collect all the dew from all the plants because that dew is, like, precious water that you can't let go. And, like, the sealing tent, the, yeah. like, the self-sealing tent, with that, which has, like, the water pouches and yeah. all yeah. that stuff. Um, oh, and related to that, sorry, one more that I really liked was the... When they, when they show Paul, like, their reserves of water, they're, like, incredibly accurate measurement system where they can, like, pour it in and they're like, oh, this is exactly, like, whatever three liters, like, what, point four two eight nine or whatever yeah. <laughs> um, of water, and this is what you own, and this is our total reserves. I thought that was really yeah. cool, too. And reclaiming the water from the dead, too, oh, and how yeah. that was also, yeah. like, there had to be tricky, like, melding of cultures there because, you know, people outside the Fremens don't understand the way that you would, you know, reclaim the water from... He, they, you know, one side sees it as disrespectful, and the other side sees it as like you're giving your water back to your people. Yeah, you know, so it's yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, that makes a lot. Uh, that one was good too. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, another like, so it's, as far as like cultural taboos, um, with the Bene Gesserit and their manipulation of religion. There's, a, there's another interesting aspect there, not to, like, totally derail. I was like, is this your favorite technology? <laughs> no, no, I'll share that, too. So I think end my, on a happy note. My favorite technology... Yeah, okay, so if we want to end on a happy note, then I'll mention this. So, like... No, you can say what you're going to say. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I think it's illegal for, like, spies to pose as religious figures uh, in the U.S. or as, like, medical figures. Interesting. So we have a cultural taboo over, like, directly manipulating, like, religion. Yeah. And I think historically it's kind of been the case, too, to, like, externally directly manipulate religion. But when, you know, the colonizers just came to the New World, they kind of did that. Like, they posed as, like, deities. Yeah. Um, or, like, you know, religious organizations at certain times in history have internally, implicitly used their influence to push forward political ends. Yeah. Um, so it's just interesting how, like, in this world, the Bene Gesserit don't have a social taboo around manipulating religion. Mm-mm. Yeah, no. not at all. Yeah. Just it's almost strange. like explicitly and intentionally they manipulate religion everywhere they can because they know it's such a powerful tool. Yeah. 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 So that's an interesting disconnect between real life and this. Yeah. Because there are cultures that, like, you know, practice cannibalism. Not like reclaiming the water is cannibalism, but it's, you know, like, engaging with your dead in a way that we wouldn't recognize um, so that there's more precedent for that than what the Benny just do a little bit I think they're going to be able to hear the dog barking <laughs> um, we're soon going to reclaim his water for this. <laughs> um, my favorite technology was kind of the lack of technology just yeah. the fact that like everyone has swords and there are no computers and everyone's on like a digital break <laughs> And just like the vague illusions to when the AIs took over and they had to like destroy them all. Yeah. Yeah. But they had their own version of a book, right? It was some sort of thing. Yeah, the, 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 orange, the OC Bible. Yeah. yeah. That was cool. Orange Catholic Bible. I found that naming interesting. I was like, oh, you stick a color at the beginning of religion. It's only a new religion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Orange <was> clever. <laughs> you gotta read the uh, the second uh, appendix in here because it's about the origins of the OC Bible and the religion. Oh, so they really? talk about like the religious history and how basically like there are all these religious wars but then, you know, everyone realized like, wait a second, 
there are some common threads between all of our religions, so maybe we should just make one religious text that combines everything. And then these guys all go off into this one planet, and they, like, disappear for, like, nine years, these representatives of all the major religions. And they come out with this book, and they take it back to their people, and, like, the vast majority of them are, like, lynched and massacred by their people for heresy. But then over, like, hundreds of years, the O.C. Bible, like, overtakes all the other religion in the universe. Wow. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. yeah, I gotta read that. I'm gonna borrow your book, babe. Yeah, I think the hundreds of years thing is another reason why, like, religious manipulation is less less frequently seen in the way it is in the Dune in real life. Because when people try to make these abrupt changes to, like, long-held traditions, they don't always hold or go well. Yeah. Like, in ancient Egypt, like, there was an emperor that tried to, like, transition the society from, like, you know, uh, monotheism to polytheism or vice versa. And in a generation, it was, like, you know, turned back. It was just too much history, too much momentum. Yeah. Um, whereas the Bene Gesserit have that, like, super long view, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I wonder if they're going to bring in all that, like, stuff. Like, I mean, the Bene Gesserit straight up, like, breed, breed people for their yeah. own ends. Yeah. Um, I wonder if that... We're gonna bring that up in the next movie. I hope they do because it's it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. To, you hear more about Jessica's background. I'll be really curious to see how the next movie is because I felt that the political intrigue and stuff, like you know, all these complexities of the interpersonal relationships and the leadership, I don't think they can really capture it in a movie. Um, and I don't it's think they did in the first much. movie. Which is uh, okay. Like again, they're different mediums, and you can achieve different things. Yeah. So I'll be curious to see how they do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, like, one of the things I found was really striking when they first went out into the desert was, like, how Paul realized, like, he can't grieve for his dad and he can see the entire future and, like, yeah. he just, like, has this crazy, like, out-of-body experience. Yeah. I felt like that wasn't really in the movie almost at all. No. The whole, like, mentat angle yeah. for Paul. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was stripped out. Because he has, like, three things going on. He's, like, royal. He has the Bene Gesserit stuff going on and he's a mentat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you barely even know what the Mentats are in the movie. Like, I thought that was a total, like, like, like you could have had, they implied it, but if you didn't n- read the book, I feel like you m- really missed the significance and, like, the understanding yeah. of what is happening with these, yeah. like, two characters who happen to have a little thing on their lip. Like, that's the only thing that connects them. If you haven't read the book, you don't know they're Mentats. Or he what are Mentats. something at one point? Yeah, but that's it. But it's like, is he that's a cyborg like, totally, or what's... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't know what the hell's going on. And you have no idea, to Ari's point, that um, Paul has that abil- those abilities. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I'll be interested to see. I think the thing I'm most excited for for the next movie is the Sand Rider scene, because I think they yeah. have to put that scene in oh, there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the final battle I'm really excited for, yeah. where they, like, ride in and freaking blow up everything with all the modern CGI. and yeah. the oh, definitely. The Fedakin, like, Death Commandos are going in, like, assassinating the Sarnikars. That's <laughs> nah, going to be so good. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited the, for that. The, the battle scenes in this movie were pretty pretty damn good, yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have, I'm excited also to rewatch the first movie after having read the book, because I think, like... There was a lot of stuff that I missed watching the movie because, again, there's, it's so complex, the world that is woven in the book, and they're trying to, like, do their best to, like, fit it into a movie. Yeah. The thing is, for all that they've cut out, it's still, like, what, a two, two-and-a-half-hour movie or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. So, two-and-a-half hours, yep. 
you know, they can't have really made it too much longer unless yeah, it was like true. Peter Jackson's extended cut of Lord of the Rings <laughs> where each movie is like three and a half hours. Yeah. I have all of those, by the way. We should watch them at some point. <laughs> <laughs> only the extended. I have all the extended editions. I may That's have only important. watched the extended. I'm nice. I think I the, just can't remember. I think the original editions are the better movies. But if you just love Lord of the Rings, just the extended more. yeah exactly yeah, the extended editions are great. You're yeah. like hell yeah. <laughs> and the crazy thing about that one too is like there's still a ton of shit that he cut out of the like there's no Tom Bombadil. Oh really? Yeah. And Tom Bombadil is like a hundred pages of the first book. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, insane. <laughs> but yeah. All right. Any closing thoughts on Dune? Uh, I guess the one thing I'll say is go read this book. Like Hot Zone, um, this is one of the best books I've read in recent times. It's like 600 pages, and I got through it in like a week. I couldn't put it down. I was reading it constantly. Um, And it's really just fantastic. And the movie is also excellent, but it is not a substitute for the book. They're like almost like different pieces of work entirely. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's my thoughts on it. Yeah, Yeah, and if you have trouble getting through a long book, audiobook is is very good mm-hmm. so agree. you know yeah. find find your way find your way to this book yes agreed and for me personally i enjoyed watching the movie first and then reading the book is like the movie kind of like it's super enticing and pulls you into the world and you're like damn i really wish i could finish this story and you can through the book <laughs> so but you have to you have to know yourself because personally I always find it easier to read the book first because yeah. otherwise I like lose my motivation to finish the book if I like already know the broad That's strokes. Yeah, yeah. So you know. Yeah, there, there's definitely uh, more. Knows, yeah. You know. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, you know yourself best whether that would, which would be better. Yeah. 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 Um. I would also say share this podcast. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and you know, if you want to visit our website at readmore.io and sign up for our uh, newsletter there slash waiting list, that's rdmr.io. Yeah, yeah. Just um, to be clear. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, you can also drop us a line at contact at rdmr.io. Um, we'd love to hear from you on you know your thoughts on Dune, what you think we should read next, if there's certain subjects or or themes, books, uh, anything like that. If you're glad that Ion survived um, <laughs> his captivity. <laughs> All the people that were thrown down there. <laughs> um, like, if you wanted to go away again and come back with desert power. <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best, yeah. <laughs> well, you might be coming back with ocean power, sea power. Yeah, we should watch Aquaman, like... In the Caribbean. That's the best place to watch. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. We need to start downloading movies for yeah. our trip. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Happy holidays, everyone. Happy Halloween, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it is always Halloween in my house, so. Yeah, true. True. That's a wrap. <laughs>